Hi, it's Grace Cowan, and this is Frogmore Stew. With my horn, yeah. Yeah, my horn belongs to South Carolina. The Supreme Court is currently deciding on a case called Alexander versus South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. It's a case about South Carolina's District 1 and what the NAACP says is a full-on gerrymander. And we'll likely hear the Supreme Court's decision this month. Mac DeFord is a practicing attorney and was at the Supreme Court when they heard the case. And we're going to do a deep dive with him to get a better understanding of the case and its potential outcomes. Mac. Welcome to Frogmore Stew. Hi, Grace. Thank you for having me. You are one of two Democrats running in the 2024 primary election against Nancy Mace. It's for District 1, the U.S. House of Representatives. And that district covers Beaufort, Charleston, Berkeley, Dorchester counties. It's just over about 760,000 people. That seat in the last 30 years or so has been held by everyone from Mark Sanford to Tim Scott. It was a pretty reliable, solid red district until 2018. Joe Cunningham, Democrat, beat Katie Arrington over kind of an offshore drilling policy. That was the first time that a Dem was in that seat since the 1980s. And then in 2020, Nancy Mace beat Cunningham by 5,500 votes. That meant, though, that the district was then truly a swing seat. 2020 census happened, redistricting. Essentially, the legislature took 30,000 Black voters, which is, as we know, about 60% of South Carolina's Democratic Party is made up of Black voters, and moved them out of District 1 into District 6, which is Jim Clyburn's district, over 100 miles away from North Charleston basically packing more Democrat voters into his already deeply district, our only House seat in the state that's blue. Full-on gerrymander. In the election after redistricting 2022, Nancy Mace had a 14-point win or 37,000-vote win over Annie Andrews. No longer a swing district. The Republican-dominated state legislature made sure that that was not going to be closed. However, during that time, the South Carolina Conference of the NAACP sued, and in January of 2023, a federal three-panel court found the redistrict unconstitutional for racial gerrymandering. The state appealed, and the case went to the Supreme Court, called Alexander versus South Carolina Conference of the NAACP. So, Matt, can you explain to us what grounds the NAACP is suing on? Yeah, so the the South Carolina case, Alexander versus South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP, was brought under the 14th and 15th Amendment. They are equal protection challenges. They're making the argument that the state of South Carolina used race as a proxy to draw the legislative districts, particularly for the first congressional district, which is illegal. And so this case is different than some of the other cases that are out there right now. There actually are, are a lot of cases out there mm-hmm. suing post-redistricting, but it's different because many of those cases are suing under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But this case is a little bit different. It's the 14th and 15th Amendment of the Constitution versus the Voting Rights Act. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So the Voting Rights Act, that was established in 1965, uh, it's designed to enforce the voting rights that are guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendments. And you had really three main sections of the Voting Rights Act. Section 2, which is in full force and in effect today, 
primarily used as the basis for most voting rights lawsuits. It prohibits any voting procedure that discriminates on the basis of race or color. That actually was undone a little bit because there was a lower court rule that you can no longer sue as an individual. It has to be the Department of Justice that sues. That's right. Yes. So the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals held that private litigants can no longer bring lawsuits under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that will very likely make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So currently, that ruling is only applicable to those states that are in the Eighth Circuit. So Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North and South Dakota. And as it makes its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, we'll see uh, whether that applicability is expanded or not. Also, a three-judge panel for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals did hold that there is a private right of action under Section 2, which is completely opposite of the ruling out of the Eighth Circuit. So we will see that get resolved as the Eighth Circuit case makes its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so back to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there are three parts that you were going into. Yeah, so some of them are in effect currently. Some others have been ruled unconstitutional. So Section 2, again, is the key provision that, that most voting rights lawsuits are brought today, which prohibits you know, voting practices that discriminate on the basis of race. Then there was Section 4B, which had this coverage formula to determine uh, jurisdictions which would require uh, preclearance from the Department of Justice before changing any of their voting laws. Now, that was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, and obviously here in South Carolina, in the Charleston area, we have a, a very strong history of discrimination in voting. So it's unfortunate that Section 4B and 5 have been rendered ineffective in, right. in, in light of that. And I, I think especially in light of what we continue to see happening here in the state of South Carolina as it pertains to voting and uh, discrimination. There's actually a great quote in the dissent from Ruth Bader Ginsburg where she says, throwing out preclearance when it's worked and is continuing to work is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. <laughs> right. So the South Carolina case is different, right? They're not using the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to prove their case. They're using the 14th and 15th Amendments guarantee that the right to vote not be denied because of race. Let's dive into that case a little bit. The original suit included the legislative map and the congressional map, District 1, 5, and 7. There was a three-judge district court panel at the beginning of this year. They found that the claims for District 1 were the only ones that survived, that the first district was racially gerrymandered. Just to give it some background, after the 2020 census, the Republican-controlled state legislator, really led by State Senator Chip Campson, sought to bring in all of Berkeley and Buford counties into the 1st District, along with a pretty significant portion of Dorchester County. And the reason that the GOP wanted to bring in all of Buford and Berkeley counties is because they are strong Republican-performing areas here in the Low Country. They looked at how that impacted the Charleston County proportion. There were partisan analysis performed, and it showed that if the first district contained a 20% African-American voting population, that it would be a toss-up district or a swing district, which it was in 2018 and 2020. However, if it was 17%, it would give that Republican tilt that the GOP was trying to achieve. 
The Charleston County portion of Black voters in 2011, during the 2011 census, was about 19.8%, and the 2020 census showed about 23.17%. When they brought in all of Beaufort and Berkeley counties, in order to get that Republican tilt, mm -hmm. they excluded 30,000 African-American voters out of the Charleston County portion and put them into Congressional District 6. This is the Constitution 14th and 15th Amendment. That says that the right to vote cannot be denied because of race. But in the state of South Carolina, 60 percent of our Democrat voters are black voters. How do you distinguish between someone who's a Democrat and someone who is a black voter? Where is the line drawn? That's a great question, Grace. And I, I think that's what the conservative block of the Supreme Court when I was up there you know, watching, for example, Justice Alito was having a difficult time. His position was that the whole case for South Carolina's first district is about disentangling race and politics. And so the states being able to gerrymander based on partisan politics, that was all made possible by the Supreme Court's decision in 2019. That was a case called uh, Rucho versus Common Calls. The court there ruled that uh, didn't have the authority to resolve partisan gerrymandering claims, which really paved the way for states to just blatantly gerrymander their congressional maps to favor one party over another. And that's um, happened in blue and red states. Yes, it's happening all over. And the issue becomes then if you use race as a predominant factor, that's mm -hmm. when you start running afoul with the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's when it becomes illegal. But whatever the dominant party is in the state legislature at the time of the census is who determines the redistricting, right? And so, yes. you know, New York, California, they have pretty extreme blue maps. But then South Carolina, Texas, Florida, they have pretty extreme red maps. But some states like Michigan just passed a referendum that said they needed to implement a nonpartisan committee to redistrict. That seems like actually the best way to do it. But of course, none of the legislatures that are in power are ever going to agree to that. It has to, it's going to have to go to a referendum. In my judgment, I, I would like to see us start moving that way. But I think that's going to be a, a tough one, like, like you said, without some sort of referendum. So you went to the Supreme Court during the hearing, during the case being presented. What did you get from them in their reactions? There were really two issues that I think got a lot of attention. And the first was this concept of an alternative map that really came up a lot throughout the oral argument. You know, South Carolina, the attorney for the state, asserted that the district court panel, the three-judge panel, they erred by failing to enforce an alternative map requirement. When you say alternative maps, what does that mean? Because I do know there were alternative maps done. I think the League of Women Voters produced one. Who is it that's supposed to produce that map? Yeah, so there were other maps that were produced at trial. Again, the League of Women Voters, I think uh, State Senator Dick Carpillion uh, also submitted some alternative maps. But under the alternative map requirement, it, it would require, in this case, the NAACP to produce an alternative map to demonstrate that the state legislator could have achieved its political aims of having that Republican tilt without using race as a predominant factor. The disagreement here is that we saw some of the more liberal justices, Justice Kagan, kind of reject that and saying the alternative map requirement doesn't exist here. The task here that the NAACP had was really to just persuade the trial court 
without any sort of, you know, special evidentiary issues like producing an alternative map, that race and not the partisan political aim was the predominant consideration. And so that's kind of what this case hinges on. The state is saying, well, you know, they had access to the data that showed a lower percentage of the Charleston County portion of SE1 would result in that Republican tilt. But they're asserting that even though we had that information, that wasn't the predominant factor in us drawing this map and, and ultimately accepting it. And the NAACP has argued, well, you know, that's what the analysis showed is that in right. order to achieve that tilt, you had to reduce the African-American population of the Charleston County portion. So that's really what it hinges on. The The legislature is, is arguing that we should presume their good faith. <laughs> and even though I feel like pulling 30,000 Black voters out of a district and moving them into one 100 miles away seems, I don't know, pretty spot on of exactly what they did. <laughs> and so depending on how this case comes out, if they rule for in favor of the NAACP that it was in fact gerrymandered based on race, what comes next? Yeah. So the Supreme Court has three options to choose from, essentially. The first is that they could reverse the lower court's ruling. And in order to do that, they would have to find that the three-judge district court panel committed a clear legal error. That's really the crux of this case because the state is arguing that the district court failed to consider certain evidentiary matters. And generally speaking, uh, a lower court has a lot of discretion in, in which evidence to give weight to. And, and an appellate court, in this case, the Supreme Court, can only reverse a lower court's finding of facts or evidence if they're clearly erroneous. That's a very you know high burden to meet. So if the case is reversed, mm -hmm. that means that we won't get new lines for the first district in 2024, and we won't see the potential to get new lines until after the next census. The next census. So the other two options are the case could be remanded back to the district court with mm -hmm. perhaps some instructions and they could order a new trial, for example. And in that case, then we're kind of in a toss up, sort of in limbo. Maybe we would get new lines for 26, but very unlikely to to get new lines for 24, almost almost no shot for, for 24. And then lastly, the Supreme Court could affirm the lower court's decision how that would likely play out is we're expecting the Supreme Court to issue its decision hopefully in January. It's been requested that they expedite that and be one of the first decisions that they release. And uh, we saw them oblige that request when they heard this case at the beginning of their term in October. So hopefully they follow through with that. And if they affirm the lower court's decision, then the district court would issue an order giving the state X days, probably 30 to 45 days or so, to submit new maps and then if those maps were acceptable, those would be the new maps. That would be the new first district. Uh, if they're unacceptable, then we would see something similar happen to what we saw in Alabama, where Alabama just defied the U.S. Supreme Court. So then in which case the court appoints what's called a special master, really just somebody appointed by the court to draw the new maps. And then that would be what we would be having for the first district. The three panel court understands the urgency of this, right? Because it really does make a big difference. Right now, nearly half of the state are Democrats. Out of our seven U.S. House members, only one of them is a Democrat. Let's say the Supreme Court does affirm the lower court's decision and we get new maps for 24. 
I don't think those maps are going to be a democratic tilt. I think that it's just going to make this a purple district or a swing district. And I think that's an important distinction to make because we hear a lot of folks, including Representative Mace, and even some other people say that, you know, the first district is a swing district. I mean, you can look at the numbers. I mean, 2018, Joe Cunningham won by 4,000 votes. 2020, Nancy Mace won by 5,500 votes. And then they redistricted it. And Nancy Mace won by 37,000 votes. I don't think that in two years' time, her maverick legislating went over 32,000 votes from the last election. You were just discussing sort of the how the numbers have shifted. I mean, you, you take those 30,000 Black voters that were cut out of the first district uh, simply right. because of the, the color of their skin. That really picks up that difference and takes away that narrow margin that existed in 2018 and 2020. And that's what mm-hmm. gives her such a such a large advantage now. And I think, too, I, back to the point of how do you distinguish between a, a partisan gerrymander and a racial gerrymander is that, that it's really presumptive to assume that all 30,000 Black voters or Democrat voters, right? Yeah, yeah. And I I think it's important to understand, you know, there were a lot of people moved in and out of the first district with this redistricting. I mean, over 193,000 people were moved in and out of the first district. And I think that where this case really boils down to, and and Justice Jackson really did a, a good job really kind of reaffirming this and getting people to maybe step out of the weeds a little bit and, and see the big picture, is yeah. that the studies that were commissioned showed that the Republicans needed a 17% Black voting age population within the district in order to achieve that Republican tilt. It was about 19 or 20%. That was the only way that they were going to get there. And their studies showed that, and we see that play out where 30,000 individuals, because of the color of their skin, were disenfranchised from our democracy and and they were put into another district where the same representative that, you know, represents parts of Columbia also right. representing them down here here in the Low Country. And it's sort of interesting too, the decision on the Shelby case, it was John Roberts that wrote the court's decision. He basically said that racial disparities do not exist any longer in voting mm-hmm. because there yeah. are poll taxes and literacy tests. But if the partisans redistricting are still using race as a basis to ensure that their candidate wins, then that's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, what's the difference? There's actually a book called The Past That Would Not Die, and it's about Mississippi. And that title really describes this whole issue. It's a past that won't die. And you know, just because the state of South Carolina or other states are not using hourly blatant forms of discrimination like literacy tests and, and poll taxes, they're just getting more sophisticated in how right. they employ their voter discrimination strategies. And this is one of them. And right. It's a gross injustice to say that the first district was not racially gerrymandered. Yeah. The evidence very clearly shows that that 30,000 of our citizens, our fellow citizens, were put out of the district solely because of the color of their skin. And it feels like gaslighting. <laughs> you yeah. know, where they're like, no, no, that's not what we did. We did this other thing. In the end, the courts really don't have the final say on the matter. I mean, Congress has specific authority under the 15th Amendment to craft legislation to safeguard the right to vote. But who knows when that's going to happen or will ever happen. (laughs) But really, that could solve all of these problems and all of these gerrymanders on blue and red states. Some sections of the Voting Rights Act were 
never meant to be permanent. And we've seen that because we've seen several amendments and extensions. I mean, just, just in 2006, there's a reauthorization of the key provisions of the Voting Rights Act for another 25 years. And so I do think it is past time that Congress needs to evaluate how voter discrimination is occurring in our country in a modern world and, and figure out the best way to tackle that and, and perhaps you know, establish new legislation that protects the right to vote uh, so that people aren't discriminated on the basis right. of race or, or any other category. And it does seem like it should be a bipartisan effort, like almost an easy bipartisan effort, right? Because it happens both in blue states and red states. You would think we'd be able to get enough votes in the House and Senate to pass that through, but may not be the right time. So this is sort of a sidebar question, but w- what does the Supreme Court look like? I mean, when you walk in, does it feel super formal? Are there a lot of people there? What does it look like? How big is it? Anyone is welcome to sit in on an oral argument. It, it is very formal. It's a beautiful building on the inside. It's very heavy security, as you can imagine. The room itself is, it's not the biggest courtroom I've ever been in, but it is very impressive. And when I was there, you have the main gallery for, I guess, spectators, you know, people that are there to observe. And then you have area in between that gallery and, and the dais where the lawyers and, and the legal team will be sitting. Mac, I cannot tell you how thankful I am to have you on to explain all of this to us. And I do hope that when they come out with their judgment, you'll come back so we can talk about it more. Yeah, I would love to come back. And it's it's an exciting time, but I'm, I'm going to remain optimistic that that hopefully the court will will see this for what it is and the majority will decide that they're going to affirm the, the lower court's decision and that will hopefully give us new maps for next year. Again, so good to have you and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's all this do for today. Talk to you next week. Put my heart, yeah. Yeah, my heart belongs to South Carolina. The Frogmore Stew Podcast with Grace Cowan is produced and directed by T.J. Phillips with the Podcast Solutions Network. That's a place where I want to be.